Welcome to Bone to Pick. We are here tonight at the Manhattan School of Music here in New York City, and I am very pleased to interview our featured artist of the month, bass trombonist extraordinaire, Mr. Dave Taylor. Uh, Dave has sculpted uh, a, an incredible career by any estimation. He's a virtuoso on the instrument. Uh, he has been the, the studio kingpin, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, kingpin, not, not, I like not, that. <laughs> not, much, uh, not much recording going on in New York that Dave Taylor wasn't on. And in the past 25 to 30 years, he's uh, forged an internationally renowned solo career. Uh, very impressive on a number of levels. Um, in particular, I, what I find extremely impressive is that he's done it on an instrument that pre-Dave Taylor wasn't really thought of as a, as a solo instrument so much. So he's paved a way for himself and for uh, more bass trombonists to follow and uh, uh, quite an impressive thing. Um, on a personal level, Dave and I have uh, known each other. I should say I've known Dave for a better part of 25 years. Um, safe to say we haven't always seen eye to eye. But, safe uh, to say. <laughs> I guess the I guess the night we got almost got in a fight at uh, Natalie Cole concert at Avery Fisher Hall might be a when I say fight I mean fist fight fist fight um, yeah it was yeah. real <laughs> but it was real for me with Jocko backstage there and it was real for me with Pierre Boulez there too well I, I must admit I, I, I appreciate I'm not being proud in, of that don't get me wrong you know <laughs> <laughs> well I appreciate being in that level of company I'm not sure yes. I'm worthy of that you but are I'll, worthy I'll, I'll, no I'll, you I'll are take. worthy of that um, but anyway uh, I will say this Dave and I have done a lot of playing together over the years and a lot of great playing. Uh, Bob yeah. Minster's band comes to mind, yeah. lots of uh, recording in New York. And I think, I think one of the things that that showed me is that New York is a great place in terms of uh, different styles and uh, personalities being able to coexist and, and make music together and, and, uh, and really have a platform. You that, know, for my works. 40th birthday, I had a, ra a studio Rainbow Coalition 40th birthday party at my house. Very cool. We rented a tent in the backyard, and I had all the various clicks because I was very lucky I crossed all the, the clicks at that time. And it was very interesting, so I had to figure out a way, and at that time it was Jesse Jackson had his Rainbow Coalition. Right, right. So I figured out, right, Studio Rainbow Coalition. Does that work like it the Jewish like bass drum player the same <laughs> right. as Jesse Jackson? It worked like a chunk. <laughs> worked like a chunk. Well, anyway, Dave. I tell I, everybody got crazy at the, not, not angry, but we had a good time at that mm. party. And, uh, Partaking we, of uh, 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 substances. Uh, what, no, 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 no. Nothing no, like that, no, of course, no. of course. But, uh, well, listen, Dave, it's, yeah. it's great that you're here tonight. Thank you for taking time out. I know you just got back from India, yeah. so we appreciate you taking time out. Um, why don't we start right, uh, right from the beginning. You grew up in Brooklyn. Yes. And you attended Juilliard. Maybe you could talk a, a little bit about how you ended up on the bass okay. trombone, what your experience was like at Juilliard, okay. things along those lines. Um, I was very lucky. I was in the sixth grade of public school in New York uh, in the 50s. Uh, the public school system had great music departments. And um, I took a music aptitude test, which I guess was very rudimentary. Luckily, it wasn't absent that day in the auditorium with a bunch of the kids. And Mr. Saslow came. He was in his junior high. <clears throat> Mr. Saslow, uh, George Saslow, a marvelous, marvelous uh, educator. Um, so I got in somehow, I don't know how. And uh, we all started on trumpet. And about a month in, that was pretty good. About a month in, uh, he comes out with a tuba and he says who thinks they're big enough to play this bright shiny tuba <laughs> and of course I was the run you know the little kid oh I went me and so I got the tuba and then he needed a uh, I guess he needed a tuba player in the senior band an orchestra so uh, I had to accelerate very quickly and uh, I played tubby the tuba and all that and I was tuba playing helped me out in the studio career too because in the 60s when I started subbing for Alan Rath there were very few tuba doublers mm. so uh 
Yeah, so I, I, I went in my first show was under the apple tree. I, I might have mentioned to you earlier, Art Farmer was sitting right behind me. The conductor was a guy named Hal Hastings, and he was always looking at me, and then I realized he had a roving eye. One eye was like always out there, and one eye was over there, so he wasn't really <laughs> looking at me, but he just could. And then that was pretty successful, so I used to suffer him a lot. This was when I was at Juilliard. Very interesting, you know. Um, How was it getting in, like, the audition process, say, getting into Juilliard? The is Juilliard, it similar yeah. to it, the way it is now? Or is uh, it? I don't know. It might have been a little more lenient because um, I took up the tenor trombone when I was a senior in high school. My kid brother had a, tenor, a trombone in the house uh, where my mother or father couldn't get me home from school, which was pretty far away. I couldn't get the tuba home, but the trombone mm. was always there. I really never liked the trombone. Mm. Uh, it was the only brass instrument I couldn't play. I was a good baritone horn player, good tuba player. Uh, I was a pretty good tuba player. I got in the old borough orchestra. Mm. I loved the tuba. Mm -hmm. and, um, but the slide was very different for me, but it was in the house, you know. So. Um, I auditioned. I wasn't a good reader, a very bad reader, as a matter of fact. I, I could read high school <clears throat> umpa parts and stuff. <clears throat> but I. Um, well, so when I auditioned for Juilliard, I auditioned on the uh, Haydn Trumpet Concerto Second Movement. Da, 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 do, de, do, da, da, da. You know, that was, it's very simple, very, uh, right? I wasn't good at the sight reading thing, but uh, they let me in. And when I started teaching at Manus College, uh, Mr. Dean Tennis, he was a French horn player in the Philharmonic at the time. He was on the board. I used to hug and kiss this guy. Every time I saw him in the hall, Mr. Dean Tennis, I'd give him a kiss because those guys were lenient. For some reason, they let me in. They let me into Manhattan. I didn't want to go to Manhattan, though, because the guy I wanted to study with was a guy named Davis Schumann. Davis Schumann. Uh, Darius Mio wrote for him. Uh, 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 Ernest Block wrote for him. He was a friend mm. of Hindemith. This guy was wow. He did transcriptions. Sound familiar? I mean, that's, I think yeah. that's probably, he was my, my beloved teacher. And, and <clears throat> he invented an angular trombone. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I have heard of that. Right, actually. and I, owned, yeah. I actually owned one. Um, I'm sorry I had a cell that I couldn't afford to buy a bass trombone when I eventually shifted, but uh, the, simple, the, pro, the, the procedure was simple with this thing. He was a civil engineer, David Schumann. He died young. He died in his 50s during my third year at Julia, second or third year at Julia. And uh, I never gave a school recital. I was able to skip after. I, I was here for six years at Julia. I, a bachelor of science degree for five years. We take extra academic credits and then a Master of Science degree the uh, sixth year. So even though um, I had problems with academe, they actually made me qualified for a lot of different stuff. So uh, the angular trombone was, the idea was when we play the trombone, we actually move our arms into the center. It, our arms don't go straight out. Mm. But if you move the slide on an 11 degree angle, the slide goes that way, but your arm is actually going straight out. So it facilitates mm. shorter arms and this and that. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't, Guess didn't, didn't go quite over. catch on. Yeah. <laughs> right, good idea, go nonetheless. Right. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so Julia was very interesting. I, I couldn't get into the regular theory class at the beginning because I didn't know even the stems go up or down on a D. You could write it either way. That kind of, I was that rudimentary. So they sent me to Mrs. Bamberger's class with a bunch of other people there, but we didn't know anything about it. Uh, and they wouldn't let me in any ensembles. I was actually in one big ensemble. They couldn't keep that all in them. So I immediately went to the outside, to the street. Uh, I, I was very ambitious. And uh, so I started playing in, in uh, as many community orchestras as I can get into. Wow. And, yeah. and, and then by the third, fourth year, then I started getting into, it really turned around for me when I switched to the bass trombone. Um, 
Well, so you were a tenor trombone player? I was a tenor trombone player, okay. a senior in high school, and for the first two or th three years at Juilliard. Okay. Uh, then one of the guys, I, I went to the music academy at the West uh, one summer, and somebody put a bass trombone on my hand. I said, oh, that's nice, blah, blah. Uh, but then the following year, somebody said the Liederkranz Orchestra of New York, that was a German uh, a social club, needed a bass trombone player to play in one of their gigs. So I said, yeah. So I borrowed the school's horn, which was a leaky Con 72H, but I dug it. Mm -hmm. And I uh, played that for a year. And as soon as I started playing the bass trombone, it must be because of the tuba, um, it was like within six months, man, it was like, boom. It was like, wow. uh, yeah. And um, then I bought my own horn finally. I bought a Holton. Uh, nobody was playing on a Holton, but I dug it because it wasn't as heavy as the Bach in terms of producing a tone, it was much easier to produce a tone and the sound had brilliance to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, even when you play soft, you could be heard. Mm -hmm. You know what I say? When you're playing those big heavy horns sometimes, you play soft, although they can carry the tone longer because the metal rings longer. Uh, there's something about brilliance. I'm not afraid of brilliance in the mm -hmm. sound, you know? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't call it, what do they call that? Bright, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't like bright, brilliance I like. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear great op bass singers in an opera, you can always hear them because they have brilliance mm -hmm. in the sound. All right. Um, so, so you I went, got out of, I'm sorry, yeah, you, no, 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 no. You got, so you got out of Juilliard then, when was that about? 60, 60. <laughs> I came in at 62, I got out at 68. 68, 68. okay. Right. And so yeah. at that point you were already pretty much fixed I had auditioned for Leopold Stokowski, went up to his house on Fifth Avenue, <laughs> played two or three notes, had a little conversation, and started playing the American Symphony. And uh, that was my first gig, the first steady type of gig. I haven't had a steady gig, I think, since 1972. I haven't had a, haven't had a real job. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've risen above it quite well. <laughs> so um, so I, I played, and I was playing in the Brooklyn Philharmonic, and I was playing in a Westchester thing, and St. Luke's. And, but um, I started sending in subs for rehearsals and stuff, because I was doing, started getting into the studio work, and I prioritized that. Hmm. So when you start sending in subs for rehearsals in, in freelance symphonic groups, you don't last very long, but it worked out, you know. Uh, so, I, yeah, so I, I started playing in Stokowski's orchestra. I've been playing at Carnegie Hall since 1966, man. Mm. In fact, I got my, another gig with the New England Chamber Orchestra playing in April this year. So I've been playing there for like, did the Jay-Z thing there. I mean, mm -hmm. I do a lot of different things at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. It's a That's wonderful cool. way to go through your career. For sure, yeah. What was what I leave out? Uh, yeah, I well, I mean, no, I was just curious. Like, I know we've we've actually had this conversation many, many years ago. Uh, you told me about how you kind of came to a crossroads where you you had to make a decision whether you're going to go the orchestral route or yeah. And you you had to right. foot. I was uh, subbing in, in Philharmonic a lot, you know? and uh, they really wanted me there. Mm -hmm. But uh, it wasn't a hard decision for me to not play there because I was at that point doing so much. You know, my, I have a freelance career, but you got to remember. I've been playing in all the best jazz groups. I've been playing right. in all the, I mean, it's insane. I feel blessed, man. Yeah. You know, uh, all the best jazz bands uh, on all the great, a lot of the great rock and roll records and uh, and all the great freelance orchestras. I still play with Orpheus and uh, I'll be playing again, uh, playing this year, playing, uh, next year on the thing in October, uh, playing with the Philharmonic in uh, April. I mean, it's like, yeah. so it's still, uh, yeah, I don't think I made it. I, there was one period of time, I mentioned it to you earlier, when I was in my 50s, and I, and I started saying, nah, if I had taken a gig, I could coast. 
Yeah. But I'm not a coach type of fellow, so. Let's know. talk about what, well, tell me about you know the what studio. Happened? Wait, wait. wait. <laughs> um, no, 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 wait. <laughs> when, uh, when I never bothered showing up for the audition for the orchestra, and they got pissed. Somebody got, they would, we cut that out. Yeah. Seems they got totally a, sensitive. They, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of the guys got annoyed. Vince Penzarella, you know who Vince Penzarella? Sure, of course. Vince Penzarella brought me up to his apartment afterwards and got me totally blitzed. Drunk. We were both drunk, and he just stood this there. This is your penalty for not showing up yeah, for the uh, audition. Yeah, he berating me. Can How could I not? <laughs> How could I not? How could I? Uh, I guess they were worried maybe that I turned down a good opportunity, and uh, yeah, you know, sure. you know, maybe blew a good opportunity or something like that. Gerard Schwartz was a little bugged at me about that too. He was lead trumpet at that time. And well, part of you think felt, it must have been that you had such a solid footing in the studio business at that point. You were probably yeah. And going I asked down my good road. friend Alan Rubin, "What should I do?" So, <laughs> a so, pillar of sound so, judgment. Right. So he um, he took me down to. Uh, we, we were in his car. It was a sixteen hundred old sixteen hundred BMW, and we were sitting at that time. There was a municipal parking lot. Uh, on 54th Street, and we were sitting in the basement. These are where you make your career decisions? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were parking, I guess we had a record date or something. I don't know. We were sitting, I said, geez, Alan, what should I do? He says, well, look, and I, should, I don't mean this, uh, I don't believe in it, but he said, look, really an orchestra is a glorified Broadway show. And who are you going to hang out with after a concert? What are you going to do, go for quiche? <laughs> so I said, you know, <laughs> that's, that's some sound thinking. Yeah, well. So I, I passed on it. I, I've had harder decisions to make, though. I mean, there was um, one time I was playing in Gil Evans' orchestra, and we were going to play with Sting in Perugia, and I got called to play with the Santa Fe Chamber uh, Festival, and they were doing Listowato Soldat, the Stravinsky piece, and I agonized over that decision for six months. It was an isolated gig, but... So those are the gigs that I have a hard time. You, the, the, mm. you know, it's funny, man. Life decisions happen. People think life decisions happen slowly and this and that, but really they're not. They're boom, mm. and then there's a decision made. But with the individual gig thing, I had to always gamble. Uh, like, for example, I rarely ask for double scale on a recording session. I know like in the West Coast, those guys are always, and maybe even here, they're doing, I don't even know. Because I figured once you start asking for more money on a, on a gig, the employer feels he owns you. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm. But I would rather not feel owned and be independent. And I was able to send in subs all over the place. Like even with Mince's band on recordings. You mentioned Matt Fenders, one of your buddies. I even sent him on part of a recording mm -hmm. to Mince's. I always sent in subs every place I went and people were lenient, you know, and uh, I, I, always went where, I always went where I was wanted the most. Hmm. Let's, let's just, before we, I want to talk, talk about... I'm going too fast, right? No, 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 no it's, no, it's all no, good. No. Um, I want to talk a, a good deal about Bob Mincer's band. Yeah. Before we get to that, let's just talk about, once you established yourself uh, and you were the guy playing bass from one of the studios, tell us about the sections that you were working with and, and the various folks that you know, were a part of that scene. Obviously, the names, we, you should we had a, we, we had a, we had a great, uh, we, we, there were units. Uh, even when I came in, there was uh, units uh, led by, uh, let's say, Bernie Glow, and then there were guys like Ernie Royal, and, and Phil Bodner, and Romeo Pinkley, and all these guys. And Irby was in part of that group, Irby mm -hmm. Green, and, and um, 
probably Frank Rehack and all, oh, and, sure. and, yeah, and all of that. And then there were other guys too, like Joe Shepley and a bunch of those guys. They did a lot of the rock and roll stuff and, and things like that. Well, we had that too. There's always cliques, man. You know that because yeah, you had sure. a group too. Yeah, sure. um, my group, I, I, I can't believe it was so lucky. Um, the trumpets and these guys were my buddies, were, were uh, Alan Rubin, Lou Soloff, John Faddis, Randy Brecker. Uh, the saxophone players were Michael Brecker, David Sanborn, George Young, Ronnie Cuba, uh, me, Miko Minardo, Wayne Andre. Um, uh, we couldn't wait to get to work. Yeah. Because it was so much fun. Musical and personal. Uh, yeah, it was just so it's much great. fun. And uh, we even rented a studio apartment, uh, Ruben and I, Lou Delgado. Lou Delgado was another mm -hmm. one of the guys mm -hmm. in the saxophone section. Lou did all the double redoubling and stuff like that. He became the contractor Saturday Night Live. You know, so it was all, uh, is that what you want? Yeah, that yeah, the question? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the bottom line of the whole thing was quality. Mm -hmm. And we think, we hope, that was yeah. the bottom line of the whole thing was you got to do the job. Part of the reason that it was quality based was we were so busy working so many dates. I mean, um, you had to be able to get the guys out without using the overtime because everybody was booked back to back. So if you were a type of guy who couldn't get the guys out, they lose money. Yeah. It's money. Yeah. And all the studios all, all the studios were in Midtown at that point, lot, right? Yes, so the studios in Midtown. I used to walk. A lot of guys would cab it, but I used to walk and put my trombone on a cart because I was always into trying to, I wasn't an exerciser per se, so I always looked, uh, you know, that caveman approach to exercising where you do, what you, <laughs> you do what you do as your profession, and that's your exercise. Yeah. So I would always try to make it a little more strenuous. That was very interesting, too. Um, I was playing in Thad Jones's band at the same time I was subbing a lot in the Philharmonic. And um, I remember there was one jingle that uh, John Faddis and I were on. We weren't going to go to Rochester. There was going to be a, the band was playing up in Rochester, and um, we had subs up there. We, but at the last minute, we decided to take a plane up. And it turned out there was a public service TV show, Thad Jones. Uh, Jimmy Nepper was in the band at that time. What a uh -huh. gorgeous player of this course. kid was, right? Of Butter course. Jackson. I used uh -huh, to carry sure. Butter's bags for him. He was an old man at that time, probably younger than I am. You know, <laughs> not, but uh, but um, we went up there, and Jimmy got a little bug. Jimmy would get bugged every now and then. So yeah, so he pushed the microphone over to me. He didn't want any part of the microphone. So on the public service TV show, all you heard was George Moraz, John Faddis, and me. <laughs> you know that kind of, you know what I mean when I say all oh, you heard, but yeah, that yeah. was the basic what you heard. Simultaneously to that, um, I was playing in the Philharmonic at the same time, and I think people started putting two and two together. And within a week of that whole experience, I started doing at least seven recording sessions a week. Wow! And then a couple of weeks after that, like it was like almost like overnight. Then a couple of weeks after that. Um, I was up to my nine, between nine and 20. It was nuts, you know that, yeah. it was nuts. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, I only it got the tail nuts. end. I was well, never was in the, uh, the, the- And we loved it, man, day. it wasn't work. We loved it because uh, we had this boisterous, that was part of our, that was part of our modus operandi. You know, boisterous, have a good time, make the music have a good I don't know if they could do that today, though. Yeah, I'm not sure. A little more serious today. Yeah. So we just loved it, it was just a party, and we got the jobs done on time. Yeah. You know that, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's an awesome, uh, awesome story. Thanks for yeah, no, sharing. No, that. I mean, let's uh, maybe let's jump ahead to, to <clears throat> Bob Mincer's band. I'm. I think we're both big fans. I was always a huge yeah. Mincer fan, uh, and that's where I really first. I think the first time I heard you was you were giving a recital at 92nd Street Y, maybe, and 
a buddy of mine, Jim Martin, a great bass drum player in St. Ooh. Louis, said, you got to come here, Dave Taylor. So he took me down, and, and we were blown away. It was oh, an amazing recital. Thanks, man. But then right at that same <clears throat> period, um, I, I was on Buddy Rich's band. Whenever we'd come back to New York, uh, we would always run down to 7th Avenue South and hope to catch Minster's band. And, and in, in those days, the band was, I mean, it was absolutely star-studded. A lot of the guys you just described as right. yourself. Barry uh, Rogers. Barry Rogers, <clears throat> Keith O'Quinn. Keith O'Quinn. Great, great trombone section. Mike Brecker, right. David Sanborn, yeah. Roger Rosenberg was in yeah, there. Roger. Lawrence Feldman. Lawrence. Peter Erskine, Will Lee, Don Grolnick. Will Lee. Yeah. Will <laughs> Lee. I can't say that name too many times. Will but Lee. Man. The band yeah. was... Uh, you know, needless to say, star-studded. Bob's charts were amazing, of course. Right. He seemed to have an affinity for writing great bass trombone parts for you. And it also seemed to me like, I don't know, I mean, you were well-known, of course, even uh, at that point, but that that band seemed like, to me, it gave you a national and international visibility, or at least it I never it, even realized you know. that. But I, I've always I, thought I was that always kind of... in it just for learning. You have to remember, I started late. So I always felt I'm playing catch-up. I still mm. feel like I'm playing catch-up. It's like... I didn't really you think feel... Of, what, was, what was the feeling like in the band at, at that point? Did you guys feel like, wow, this is a special thing, or it was just like cool music and we're uh, going to go... Well, it was cool music and it was a special thing. We loved it. But you have to remember, too, I was, I was always um, juggling gigs. Mm -hmm. So um, even though I took every gig seriously when I was there, I was always... Here, like, for example, I once played a recital at the Guggenheim Museum just before one of the record dates. Mm. And I ran over to the... I mean, I was always juggling the thing. And, but the parts that Bob wrote for me were, were incredible, man. Yeah. Uh, incredible. Yeah. I remember once we, we, I forget the name of the first record, but Mike Brecker turned around because I had some kind of a written out part. It was fives over fours. And, but I still remember the big smile he gave me, you know. And I was always worried about my style and this and that. And I wanted to further my emotional impact on, on the horn and, and stuff like that. I knew I was a pretty good technician. By that point, I knew I was a good technician. Uh, but I was always trying to grow. There was one, there was one time when um, we were rehearsing, I forget where we were, when Peter Erskine and Don Grolnick, do you know the name Don Grolnick? Of course. Of course, sure, right. Of course. All right. They were like kind of looking and pointing at me and laughing and blah, blah, blah. And, and I went up to them and I went, what? And they were grooving on how I was personalizing the parts. Mm. And that was a big uh, thing for me. Wow. Yeah, it gave me... Courage. You know, you always need courage, man. Let I mean, me, yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because yeah. we've, we've had, I, I would say we probably have a different approach on that, but right. you, you do bring a personality, and, and that can be a great thing. It can be, sometimes to me, I wonder if that's the excess, right thing to do. It can be excess, non, not enough, do too you, much. Not, yeah. What's your, what's your feeling about that? Like something like Bob's band, where clearly he's writing, he writes a lot of independent stuff for the Barry and Bass Ramon and Bass right. together. Um, but you're still part of a smaller ensemble at that right. point. What's your feeling about how I far always will loved, you go in terms of I always loved Duke Ellington's band. Okay. Freak. For du in fact, I got to record with Duke Ellington's band. I did the mm. New Orleans Suite record. Oh, and wow. I, I was amazing, man. I, I was in my 20s at that time. Um, I, I always loved how you maintained your individual personality and somehow blended in the overview of the band based on your articulation. <clears throat> if you use a hard articulation and you're not exactly in time with somebody, you're going to be whack out. But if you're using a kind of a soft articulation, you can kind of smooth over the rough edges. Yes, sometimes it's excess. Look, I was doing a record, a Frank Sinatra record, L.A. Is My Lady. Mm -hmm, sure. Uh, it was, that was a major event with Quincy Jones and... and uh, all of that it was A&R 799, Phil Ramone. They filmed it, and um, they wrote me a part, a George Robertsy type of part. 
I remember consciously saying, I do not want to play this part like George. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I, this is a terrible thing to say, I remember saying to myself, I'd rather be wrong than sound like another guy. Mm -hmm. And so I, I messed with the time of the part. It worked out great, and it wasn't that far off. That's part of the problem, too. A, a, a lot of times I think, you know, these little personalities, devil's in the details, the, the little personality things, I often wonder if it's the lack of personality that killed the studio scene. Hmm. Maybe it made it easier for electronics to duplicate what we do when you don't use enough personality. I don't know, you know. Hmm. Um, but I always, I encourage my students, look it. Debussy did not want to play like, write like Wagner. Um, I'm sure Coltrane didn't want to play like Bird. I mean, yeah. you, you make conscious, yeah. you might be wrong, yeah, you might, you might, might be excessive, but um, I, how do you get to that? Well, that was the question, and I, I think it was a great answer, and I think you're, you're clearly, what I gained from that is that you have a thought process. I have a thought you're, process. You're, you've thought it There's out. There's times to is, do it, this, times not to do it. I mean, if, it, if you, you sense made. you're not being in the spirit of the music, then you'd be foolish to... That's a hard thing to determine. Though. Yeah, you know, no, that's a of hard course. thing and to it's, determine. It's, but you, I tell you one thing, if you're going to start fooling around like that, you better have practiced your scales. <laughs> you, you, you better be technically yeah. on the money, and, and the sound better be pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you're going to fool around like that. Yeah. Well, let's jump over to, to your solo career for, right. for a minute, because that's kind of where you've put most right. of your energy in the last couple of decades anyway. Right. Um, it's, you know, you've built an incredible career uh, just as a soloist, not counting all the work you did here in New York. Um, what was your motivation for, for starting it? I mean, clear, like I said at the beginning, clearly was not thought of as a solo instrument when, when you were jumping into it. Would that be safe to say? I mean, oh, uh, yeah, it would be. I mean, um, I studied at Juilliard with um, Luciano Berrio. Uh, Jacob Druckmann. I was very good friends with a female composer named Lucia Lubachevsky. Um, she uh, she took to my to my work. This is when we were students. But she she wrote for the Eric Hawkins Dance Company. She was Edgar Varese's only students in the states, and maybe the only student period. Um, she was pretty avant garde. Her music was so fast, wild, and woolly that it was my first real jump into improvisation. Hmm. You would try to play her music. It was going so fast, though, that you would have to get the shapes and get the notes in between. And it gave me a real feeling of improvisation. Luciano Berrio, when he taught his classes, always talked about the modern music scene with joy. And that, you know, when he spoke about John Cage, or he spoke, who I met and hung out with. And so I, I met all these guys, you know. And um, I was trained in that area. I played in modern music groups. It was the most natural thing for me to do to to find a voice. I couldn't find a voice. I started late. Um, I, I kept the horn on my face hours and hours, six, seven hours a day. I mean, when I was a kid, man, it was like, even when I was married, uh, had my, my first kid, I'd be in a room. And, uh, and, and with, with the studio scene, you don't play that much. Mm -hmm. So I'd be practicing at night. I, I was like a 24-7. I still, no, I wouldn't call myself a 24-7 guy now because I'm more directed. The studio scene is kind of, I, I was lucky. I phased out of the studio scene as the studio scene was phasing out. I kind of mm -hmm. made a kind of cat of nine lives thing. Um, but I had been concentrating on um, 
recitals and stuff way before you met me. Even um, just even before I was in the studio scene. I, as I said, with the studio scene, a lot of guys go in wanting to be studio musicians. I never really went in there wanting to be a studio musician. Uh, the beauty of, of, of the studio musician thing for the bass trombone, it was closer to chamber music. I mean, you go into, a, you go into um, and when I got out of Juilliard, disco was the big thing. Mm -hmm. Disco was an even eighth note proposition. Of course, yeah. And I was an orchestral player, and that's more or less an even eighth note. You know what I'm saying? Or so, well, Bach was one of my heroes, so that's more the the the, uh, the, the Baroque is more more that whole thing. So I was really a good fit for that. And I don't know. I just went wherever I went. I had a vision, but I didn't know clearly what the vision was. The, the vision was use every gig you could to advance your craft. When I was in the studios, sight reading was my. I learned how to sight read when I was at Juilliard because I used to take out piano books, I used to take out clarinet books, violin books, and I would just, um, like the piano books, no matter what it was, Chopin or whatever, I would read through the bass lines. And if there's something I couldn't play, or if there was an arpeggio in the bass line, I'd arpeggiate. I used to show up here at 7 o'clock in the morning. This, is, this was Juilliard. When I, when, uh, oh, that's when I right. Went. Yeah, oh, this was right. Juilliard. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd show up, as soon as the building opened, before class, my dad and I, God rest his soul, we used to walk to work. He, would, he was at labor. He'd, he'd walk with his tool case. Maybe that's why I carry my trombone. <laughs> he'd walk with his tool case and the, to the train. I'd walk with him. He'd go to work, and I wouldn't come home until late at night. My mother or father would pick me up at the train. I lived at home up until my last half year at Julia. We couldn't afford, you know, we come from, I, I come from my bro three brothers in the same room. Mm -hmm, thing, you mm -hmm. know, it was a shot. It was a shot in the dark, even to become a, a trombone, even, even a my older brother was a cab driver. If my options were to be a school teacher, which is honorable, my whole family is teachers. My son's a superintendent. My daughter is a high school history teacher. My wife's a retired kindergarten. My son, my daughter-in-law teaches special ed. I taught um, for a year when I got out of Juilliard. Uh, the Vietnam War was raging. Hmm. I taught for a year in a special service school where one of our teachers was murdered. My colleague, my music teacher, colleague was murdered there. Hmm. Uh, so the, the, the army gave you a deferment for that. So I taught too in, in um, middle school, Macon Junior High. And um, I had no expectations. I, I think the, hard, the one of the most important things is not to have too many expectations. I mean, I, go where you go. You mm -hmm. know, I always went where I was wanted the most. Um, I just tried my best, always warm up for gigs. I, I never showed up to a gig. I, I, maybe I can count them, literally. In 45, 50 years of playing gigs, show up on not warmed up hmm. because somebody might hear you. You can't play it. You can't play at your prime. That's you great know. advice for younger players because yeah, you can't I mean, play. You're, you're still you still keep that philosophy. You're totally, obviously at the top of your game. Totally. I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do, I get out of bed and have a cup of coffee in the practice room. If I if you could put in 45 minutes, a half hour, first thing in the morning, you carry that with you the whole day. Mm -hmm. So then you, it's just, you know. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it catches up with you if you don't warm up. If you don't it's warm gonna, up, no. It's going to be no. bad things. And you so, know, when, no. you're, when you're in the studio, you really want to get it the first time through. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, what, uh, that's what's expected. You yeah. Know, that kind yeah. Of thing. So when, Although I don't do that with, like when I'm in an orchestra, uh, I guess at the beginning, you know, sometimes it's more important to play great rehearsals than a great concert. 
because everybody's listening to you during the rehearsals. You know, mm -hmm. that's a terrible thing to say. But that, <laughs> but but for me, now, over the last thirty years, I play terrible at rehearsals because now I'm experimenting. Everybody knows mm -hmm. what to expect. I can't play rehearsals. I'm messing up stuff because I'm experimenting. What do I want to do? How do I want to wig this out? Pick my spots. Bop bop bop. And uh, then at the concert, I just go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. So back to your to your solo career. Uh, I remember in that, I think you even commissioned pieces that, that, that early recital I went to in the 80s at 96th Street Y, but it's well documented in articles and, and, and interviews that you've done uh, how much you've commissioned for yeah. the bass trombone and, and by world-class composers, yeah. Charles Warren and Eric Ways and yeah. Dave Liebman, yeah. um, David Schneider, I mean, that's Daniel, that's Daniel Schneider, Daniel Schneider. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. Schneider, Schneider. Right. I, it, it's, no, like, it's easy. I have it in my mind that I'm going to say it wrong, so no, of course I out. say it wrong. Next year we got proposed, uh, we're going to record and play this concerto. The conductor's name is Schneider, his name is Schneider, <laughs> and, and actually Taylor in German is, Schne is a Schneider, is a Taylor. So we're calling the concert Schneider, Schneider, Taylor. That's, yeah. that's going to be the concert. Count me out as the <laughs> MC. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my apologies yeah. for mispronouncing no, his he name, wrote but me it's a, whole it's a beautiful piece. He I know. He wrote me a whole repertoire, that guy. I mean... He wrote us a whole repertoire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I was playing in George Grunz's band, a European band, great band, and we were in Zurich. This must have been 25 years ago, I don't know. And um, we were playing in an airplane hangar. At that time, I used to play these crazy solos. He, George would write me these pieces where he would feature my idiosyncratic solo, mm. which is, it was very influenced by uh, guys like Luciano Berrio, Charles Ives, mm. and blues. Mm. You know, so that, so he made room for me there, and um, he was the first guy to bring me over to Europe. George, he just passed away. God rest his soul. And great bands, I mean, Alvin Jones, Joe Henderson, Joe Henderson, and, and Lee Conus were sitting in front of me for one of these whole tour. I used to take. We used to go out to dinner, and and I I pumped them both mm. one of them because one of them is conscious of every note. One of them floats over the notes. Right. Um, George had me soloing on Inner Urge. <laughs> wow. Right. And, and how'd Joe like that? Well, Joe was sitting right in front of me. And every time, and we were, he and I became friends. And, and every time I'd come back, yeah, Dave. And I, I felt he meant it. Well, he did not, I felt he meant it. And a very, very positive spirit to, with me. I mean, it was mm -hmm. like a. Wow, that's great. Yeah, he was terrific. Well, Talk, talk a little bit about your oh, yeah. philosophy so as Daniel, far as commissioning uh, and, and how, how you got into that and what the reaction was from the composers. And you've, you've built like in a very impressive uh, a, a body of work in yeah. terms of the works that have been written for you. I'm, I'm actually very proud of that. Yeah, I and, um, Well, basically it was based in the most positive sense on I wanted to learn. Um, I wanted to be at the cutting edge of where, you know, you have to remember, when I was learning how to play the bass trombone in the 60s, that was when the double valve came into existence. Mm. Um, before that, bass trombone was not a chromatic instrument. It stopped at low E, then it picked up again at B flat. Hmm. You know, uh, and then with the single valve, you couldn't get a low B. Is that what I said? It wasn't totally chromatic. Right. You couldn't but go all the way down from low E down to B flat. Right. right. Yeah. So, but when the second valve came in, I luckily picked up that. I and a handful of guys who really developed a low-range uh, facility really quickly. And um, so the, the, the bass trombone increased exponentially, mm -hmm. its, uh, its possibilities. I always wanted to um, be as expressive as a violin. That was my goal. I, I, that was my dream. And, uh, and not make people aware of the fact that you're playing on a bass trombone. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so I, and, I, and I wanted to learn from the most 
advanced and best minds, you know? And, um, and I also wanted to play in major venues. Like my first, uh, Alan Hovannis, you know that name? Mm -hmm, sure. He wrote a concerto for me. Uh, and I premiered it at Alice Tully Hall. Now, I'd never played a solo, stuff like that, you know? That was my first time. The papers gave me great reviews. Oh, it was fantastic. New York Times and everything. Mr. Taylor plays superbly. But watching him can make you seasick. That was because, you know, I move around a lot when I play. I, I, yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> right. Um, so for a whole year, I went playing solos with various orchestras, sitting down, trying to break okay. myself of that habit. But that's who I am. Yeah. So I eventually said, that's who I am. And, um, and, and that's, that's who I am. Uh, and I'll tell you something, too. I mean, I'm getting up there in years, but I still, thank God, I still can play. A lot of guys, they develop problems where they can't play. And I'm wondering if the moving around is a good way for me to keep that thing, you know. I don't could know. Be. It could be. Some people could say, be. hey, when you, when you point that thing at us in a different way, it's, it's almost like Doppler, color changes. You know, I'm a big, I was a friend of Ron Carter's, a big fan of his colors. Mm -hmm. Anything that gives me colors. Mm. Uh, I like colors. Mm -hmm. you know, anything that gives me colors. But the Daniel Schneider thing. So he heard me playing with George Gruntz over in... in um, Zurich, and the next day we were, we were eating lunch, a bunch of us at an outdoor cafe, and he, this skinny guy was, comes up to me and says, oh, and, um, and we became, uh, you know, usually I'm gruff with people like that, you know, but for somehow with him, uh, it was cool, and then he, we, we'd have a trio together yeah. with Kenny Drew Jr., so he wrote me a whole trio repertoire that everybody's playing now, duo repertoire, sonata, uh, concerto, we got another concerto, We've been playing, and um, yeah, we're going to be in May. We're going to be in California playing with the Orchestra of the Pacific. In the summer, we're going to be playing uh, in Austria. And uh, yeah, we play a lot. Yeah, the big influence on my career and life uh -huh. and, and friendship. We're very good friends. I'm Santa Claus for his children. That's good. Yeah, I would dress up like Santa <laughs> not, for the last. Not everybody school. has a Jewish Santa. It's good. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> oh, somebody said to me, "I always knew Santa was Jewish." Who said that to me? But, right. Well, that sounds that's that's great. Yeah. I, I no, appreciate like appreciate Wazer, you I met that, him. Yeah. Um, uh, John Rojak was taking lessons from me. You know who he is, John? Of Rojack? course. Yeah, 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 sure. And he was taking lessons from me. And I, and I said, "Hey, man, I'm looking for a guy." Oh, he says, "I'm going to school with a guy named Eric Wazen." And, oh wow, that's yeah. how it started. Wow. That's how it started. So I I, I went down to Eric, and, I, and again, that's what I'm saying. I was living up in the Bronx at the time, so that must have been in the late 70s or something really. So my career, I've always had that goal in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the guys made fun of it. Oh man, come on, you know. <laughs> but you know, I stuck it out. So yeah, that's, that's a big thing too. What do they call that? When um, you, you want immediate gratification? And, uh, I'm not one for immediate gratification. I, yeah. I, I was very lucky that way. I, well, you yeah. certainly persevered, and, yeah. and I mean that in the yeah, most positive way. It's oh, like that's that's yeah. that's a hard thing to yeah. to. You got to remember, I didn't have a Victrola. Uh, that's what we used to call record players until I was like sixteen. Uh, my whole everything was like fortuitous with me. It was like luck, uh, being in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, I was an avid black and white movie freak. And in a lot of the old gangster movies, there's all that hot jazz, mm -hmm. right? And Louis Armstrong and a bunch of whatever, whoever else. You know, and um, so I, I used to watch that stuff and listen to those soundtracks day and night. I was a major R&B and rock and roll AM radio guy. That's where I got my whole education. When I got into Juilliard, I forgot to tell you, um, after that first year of rudimentary 
learning, they put me in the L&M one. They have a literature and materials of music thing. And I actually was lucky enough to have lessons with the guy who originated that, Arnold Fish. There was two guys, I forget the other guy's name. He knew I was backward in terms of orchestral music. I didn't know anything about it. So he used to assign me a record every, or two, every, every week that I would have to. And the other guy who I just lucked out into was Hall Overton. I don't know if you know who that is. I don't. Hall Overton was the guy who did all the monk charts for the um, Jazz and Philharmonic in Town Hall. Oh, wow. And okay. he took to me. Wow. That's, I think I got to meet Lehman that way. My, my, and, and Eddie Daniels. I got to meet him and through that whole... Uh, Eddie had one of my favorite lines. He played on uh, one of my records, or a couple of my records, and uh, I was always a huge fan of his playing. And, uh, and the first time he came in, he walked in and he saw that I played trombone, and he says, wow, look at this, the two bastard instruments together for a recording <laughs> session. That's it. <laughs> like, That's it. And then, of course, he, meanwhile, he just completely slayed the thing, and right. that sounded phenomenal. When I was playing that angular trombone, a lot of the cats at Juilliard, the students, they didn't understand. But um, Eddie Doug Hall, mm. and he, Eddie had just won this jazz award or something like that. And he, and I keep telling, because Eddie and I have become friendly, so I, I tell um, he and Hall teamed up and let the kids know, hey, this cat is, uh, hmm. yeah, they kind of That's put, put good a nice stuff. little front. Yeah, little yeah just to line. touch on Eric E. Wazen again, I know he's done a lot of work yeah. with you. I mean, he's, I was up at New England Conservatory last week for their Brass Bash event, and, and they did uh, one of his pieces. He's such a, he's like the preeminent brass writer now to me. I mean, it's just such beautiful brass writing. I wrote a concerto last year, and I played it at the ETW. And he's so open, this cat. He said, look, I gotta, we got to get this published with my publishing company. Mm, nice. That's the kind of guy. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's, that's great. great. No, he's a great guy. Let's, let's move on to you as a teacher, um, yes. as if your playing schedule isn't busy enough. But um, you, you clearly have a passion for it. You have a philosophy behind it. Um, you're, you're on the faculty here at Manhattan School of Music. You're on the faculty at Manus. Of course, you travel year-round. and give, Oh, a new school as well. Yeah, yep. um, and you travel and give master classes around yeah. the world on a, yeah. on a regular basis. Um, I'd love to hear your thought process about teaching. And the other thing I want to ask you, which is a lot more specific, I know I've talked to several of your students who are a huge fans of you as a teacher. Um, and they're like very, very, ta very talented yeah. uh, young players. Right. Um, I think some of it, just to address it, I think the freedom, but yet a level of constraint, but there is some freedoms within that. First thing Which I do is I play duets with them. Mm. That way I know who's practicing and who's not practicing. Yeah. <laughs> you but do, how, as soon as they walk in that room. In addition to, yeah. the, it's like a two-part uh, uh, answer to this question, but this... Um, how do you feel or address the fact that there's these super talented young players who dream of being the next Dave Taylor and they're going out into a world that at best is overcrowded and at worst is virtually non-existent? How do you, as a teacher, how do you um, just kind of come to grips with that and how do you move forward with that? I think the first thing is they see how I'm still so into it mm. and that it's a never-ending process of failure Mm -hmm. and success. And I push for failure. You know, going back to that thing about experimenting with mm -hmm. personality and the music and this and that. Um, if you're going to be doing this, you, you're, you should be a lifer. And what I mean, lifer is, you know, this is what you want to do, you know. And I want them to go out. First, the, the first principle I have is those who stay in the building will stay in the building. That's the very first premise. 
So what I do is shove them out. I get them out in the street right away, and I want them, because that's where you learn. Uh, you can make school your street. I try to do that too. Uh, the way you make school your street is you try to really get around peer pressure. Um, in my classes, I have chamber music classes, I really go the extra mile to let them know that I'm a believer in failure, so you can't fail here, you know. Um, I let them know that school is a safe harbor. You fail out there, we'll get you back up and running. If you're studying with me, that means you understand that uh, you want to do something that a lot of people perhaps aren't doing. As soon as they... As soon as a guy wants to study with me, I mean, I know I'm a kind of a, I wouldn't say oddball in the academe thing, but um, I made, uh, I'm on, you know, I think I'm the only faculty member here in both classical and jazz division. Hmm. Manus is the classical division of New School. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the both classical and jazz divisions of both these pretty important institutions. Sure. So uh, if they're going to study with me, they kind of know why they're studying with me. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, my basic thing is technique, but I, play, I played with so many great jazz musicians uh, over the last 50 years. I mean, uh, man, I can't believe it when I even when I say it. <laughs> it's, I can't believe. I, I tell you the truth, man. I'm at, I'm at a point where I can't believe who I've worked with, man. It's like uh, it's insane. So when they play for me, I have them just blow, or have them bring in a little group where. And um, I just say, no, it bores me. No, no, come on, no, take it out, man. Let's go. Let's, that, you know, a little more inside. Gil, Gil Evans used to say to me when I was talking about improvisation, um, every now and then give them a guidepost, meaning the audience. Every now and then, let them know where it is. And then you get every, so I can't, or Thad Jones used to say to me, it's only a half step away, that kind of thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Gil Evans, uh, so that's how, that's, that's how I, I have them read. Um, I have them read artists and painters and poets and writers on music, uh, on on their careers. I, 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 it's hard. I'm talking nonsense. Biographies and things Biographies, like that. Biographies, essays. Uh -huh. essays. That's Gil. I used to give Gil books to read. Like I gave him the John Cage books to read, Auguste Rodin books to read, and he would give me music to listen to. Mm. He always used to love the books I gave him because you didn't have to start at the beginning. <laughs> you could pick up those books mm. at any yeah, place right. and you're right, right. there. Uh, and, and just to give you an example, like you get a guy like Henry Miller, the writer uh, who wrote Tropic of Cancer and all those books that were banned in the country at first. So you read about how he developed his technique. He, um, he finally realized that he has to write about himself on a daily basis. He, and he gives examples, and he, and, he, and he starts talking about artists and the risks they must take, like an artist who jumps in a pool wearing a life preserver. It'll be the life preserver that sinks him. Hmm. You must take risk, and you must take jump over the cliff, or or, or you read about Allen Ginsberg, the poet, who um, used to do all his schoolwork like he was supposed to, but every day he would write these nonsense things in a little scrapbook he kept, and it became that scrapbook of nonsense things that was his style, the basis of his style, and his failures, and you see, and you see all the artists' failures, or. One great thing, Auguste Rodin, the painter, the sculpture he did, The Thinker. Correct. I read a line in that, uh, those essays that just blew me away and enabled me to be less conscious about myself when I performed. And you got time for that? Yeah, yeah. There, don't forget, he was a sculptor and an artist. 
There is no such thing as beautiful color. Can you imagine that, an artist saying that? There's no such thing as beautiful color. There's no such thing as beautiful lines. Don't forget, he's a sculptor. He's saying there's no such thing. No such thing as beautiful form. He's a sculptor. No such thing as beautiful form. He says there's only one beauty, and that's the beauty of truth revealing itself. That's a very big thing for me. Mm. And um, what does that do? I mean, we can't always accomplish that. I mean... Uh, Thad used to tell me he could hear uh, two choruses in advance sometimes. Uh, Dizzy would kind of talk kind of in those terms. Um, the beauty of truth revealing itself is means it's who you are at the moment, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I always use examples of Miles and, and, uh, and, and, and the technique or non-technique or whatever he developed into. And I remind them that at this age, though, don't be Glenn Gould at the last uh, <laughs> right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, Goldberg Variations recording. Right. You got to... Don't start at the end. Don't start yeah. at the end, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I always let them know what it's like along the way. And I also let them know that originality isn't necessarily something you are born with without development. Mm -hmm. Talent is just the opening the door, man. You mm -hmm. know, it's like... Uh, that, that, that type of stuff. Yeah, that, well, you, you just said a lot of great stuff, and uh, my, I was saying it earlier, my oldest son is uh, in the, uh, the pre-college division here, and he's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play him that answer because oh. I think you said a lot of good stuff that, that all young people should listen to. There's yeah. uh, some very good information there. Give but me... then again, there's another great, I think, there was another great teacher, who, I think from Eastern, it could have been Remington, I don't know who that was, but he said, well... I get great students and just try not to ruin them. <laughs> you know, well, I'm sure, there's that a, guy, I'm sure there's a balance of that for you, too. You're yeah. going to attract great students. You don't want to turn the guy good. off yeah. to music. You don't want to strict him up. You don't want to give him school days. He's getting enough school days in school. Mm -hmm. you, know? so yeah. you try to make it, a, like I say, a safe harbor. Yeah. yeah. Give me a, and not, give, he doesn't have to play like me. <laughs> yeah. That's another big one. You don't have to yeah. do what I do. You know? Well, that's, you've always been a proponent of originality yeah. and expressiveness, so that's, I would expect that you would extend that to your students. Yeah, um, give me, give me a, a quick answer to this. I've been to your many performances of yours. We've obviously played together many, many times over the years. What's your thought process when you uh, repeat a performance? Like you get to the end mm -hmm. of a piece and you're not happy with it. And the reason I ask this is um, it almost seems contrary to what you think as a musician because you think you just got to keep going no matter what. If you make a mistake, keep going, keep going, keep going. You do your best, then it's over. But I'm not saying that I, I'm saying it in a negative or positive no, 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 way. I'm just curious what your philosophy is in terms of when you repeat a piece at the, at, after you've performed it on the same concert. The main thing about getting a piece across is getting a piece across. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't get across, man... I mean, there are times when I won't, you know, I, I, I don't repeat more than I do well, of repeat. of course, of course. But I remember the first time I did that... Um, I was playing, I had a brass quintet when I was at Juilliard. I, when I started playing the bass drum, when I, a lot of guys wanted to work with me. Ronnie Rahm, who became the trumpet player in the Canadian, Canadian brass, yeah. was part mm -hmm. of the group. David Jolly, a very well-known oh, sure. French trumpet yeah. player. Uh, Bob Cyrenac, who's now the manager of the orchestra of the Metropolitan Opera, and a friend Garrett List, who's teaching in Belgium all these years. We had a brass quintet, New York Brass Society. And we actually had a manager, Eastman Boomer was his name. Nice and, name for a manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we did, con we had records out, we did concerts. We did one concert tour, where's 
Kansas. Is that the Midwest? Or the West? Where the hell I think that's that? safe to say, yeah, Midwest, <laughs> right, I Midwest. would say, yeah. Wichita and all these places. <laughs> Tell me you didn't think it was on the West Coast. <laughs> no, I knew it was the West Coast, but I was thinking of cowboys. You hear Wichita, man, so yeah. cowboys is the West. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So, at any rate, we were out there. We were, we were playing Ewald 1. That's the opening yeah. tuba line. And um, I didn't do it. I just stopped Everybody was aghast because nobody was doing that. Man. Too was, many cowboys running around? Or was it <laughs> no, because it, it's interesting. On that concert tour, Michael Powell, you know who plays in the American sure. Brass Quintet, yeah. comes up to me and says, you know, when I heard you playing that Brass Quintet, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Isn't that nice? That's man? cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Nice. I said, yeah, I was, I was very flattered by that. At any rate, oh, that's another thing, too. Finish that story. Thing? Finish uh, the story about, right. about it because okay. I, I know All you right. have a point in there. So um, I repeated it, and I played it well. I kind of chilled myself out, or whatever it was, right? I played it well. Um, Would it be safe? I did this in Washington, D.C. once. Um, I was playing with the amp and the note, and the band got off. I got off. I don't know who got off. We got off. I mean, it was okay. being too free. Maybe I wasn't being free enough. I, I don't know what it was. Audience was aghast. I was even a little upset about that. But I, I did my thing, started mm -hmm. again. And um, the next day at the master class I was given, I really I did a bang up job, blah, blah, blah. And one of the people asked me, um, Mr. Taylor, what happened last night that you stopped and blah, blah. Well, I said, you know, I don't know what happened. We got off, but at this point in my career, I don't have to lie to anybody about anything. I don't want to lie, man, when I'm playing, I just don't want to lie. Oh, incidentally, you're allowed to lie in music. You were, mm. right? Mm. Uh, you, you're, you're allowed to um, compensate at the end of the phrase, mm -hmm. you know? And, 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 uh, but I don't want to lie. I knew something was up. Ah, I just didn't want to lie. And that happened to me several times. Once I was doing a concert at the University of Indiana. It was a, a very difficult piece. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost... Starting off a concert career on an instrument that's not concert career material, um, it's not only hard getting the repertoire, it's hard getting the gig. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So what I would do is I'd piggyback. Like there was one time I played a concert in Holland. I was over there with the Mingus Epitaph Band, Gunther Schuller, and I did a recital for all the trombone players in Holland. And um, it, was, it was in Halberstrom, Halberstrom. And um, I, after the, so the rehearsals went great, but I had to play an all-day rehearsal with the epitaph thing. And then I had to run right to do this recital. And in the middle of it, I forgot to tell the guy to get me food. <laughs> get me a bottle of water, you know what I mean? And the guy who was promoting the thing, he, he was gone. He didn't know what, you know. So I got to that gig and I struggled through the gig. Piggyback, or well, one time at University of Indiana, um, I played this difficult concert, the rehearsals went great, but then they had me teaching because they couldn't afford to bring me out there for any length of time. They had me meeting with the teachers at 6 a.m., then teaching from nine o'clock till five o'clock. By the time I got to that concert, it was like, how to repeat things? Mm -hmm. it just, uh, it's the most important thing is to make the music happen. And if, if it requires me to, to do the ego sublimation thing, I don't do I don't do that um, 
I'm, I'm playing now in front of, sometimes, a lot of times in front of 2,000 seat houses. You don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just too much, too much going on. I once did that with a whole symphony orchestra. You might have been in the audience. I had the whole symphony orchestra repeat the concert, yeah. repeat the concerto. I, I was, yeah. 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 The lights went out in the middle of yeah. the concert. And I said, well, and I'm playing, the lights go out. And uh, the conductor says, I will repeat the movement. And I said, right. <laughs> <laughs> we repeated the, I insisted they repeat the whole thing. That was the Schneider piece. Because, oh, yeah, right, because right. the leader, they were doing this for radio. And I was afraid that my friend wouldn't get the royalties mm. from mm. the radio show. Mm. Okay, business, fair enough. Business, yeah, business, business is my business, friend, yeah. man. I mean, gotta make so that, that car payment. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wanted him to get on a radio show. That was a big thing, but I, I don't think those boys have recovered yet. Although I went out to Slide Factory last year, they, I guess they recovered. <laughs> okay, well that's good. <laughs> Am I being not dignified yeah. enough here, uh, uh, Davis? No, no, no. I think plenty of dignified is the word I would use. Um, <laughs> Let's, you know how serious I'm about the horn, though. That's the bottom. I am, and I want to ask you about right. that, but I, I want to do a real quick. I want to just yeah. go through. Give me a, a one sentence or two sentence uh, response to these names, names that you have an association with. Some of have been influenced. Some of you've worked with. Just quick thoughts. You can do that, Dave. Quick thoughts. Quick thoughts. Go ahead, okay. David. Go All right, ahead. here we go. Uh, Pierre Boulez. I met Pierre Boulez at the Rug Concerts at Cooper Union. We were doing chamber music concerts uh, on the high end. I don't know how I got that gig, uh, but then the next thing I knew, I was uh, an available sub for him at, um, at the Philharmonic, and um, he liked me and I liked him. We used to kid each other, jive with each other. Um, I remember playing the, Bar uh, the Bartok Concerto for orchestra. I'd be playing wrong note. <laughs> and he said, Mr. Taylor, are you playing E flat or E natural? And I knew it was supposed to be E natural. I said, E flat. And he said, no. I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he was right. He had great ears. You know, he was yeah, right. Yeah, of course. The Stokowski did that with me once, too. We were playing the Beethoven 9, I think. I was playing F sharp instead of natural or something like that. Do better, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> But I, I dug him very much, and uh, I even got into little arguments with him sometimes when I thought he was not being the guy who he said he was. You know? Okay. Yeah. Thad Jones. Loved him. It was, he was my first, I would say, real deal, real deal, in the field, real jazz band leader. He and Mel Lewis, uh, I don't like to use the word Thad Jones without the word Mel Lewis. Um, he, he and Mel um, shaped, I was the first... I remember playing a concert with uh, Thad. Uh, used to hang with me a lot. They dug me. Um, Mel used to hang a lot. I'll tell you some negative stories about me too in that thing. Um, I was once jiving Mel, right? And Ron Carter was there, and he says to Mel, he says, "Mel, why are you taking that from him?" <laughs> and Mel said, "Because he's the best in the business." Now, whether that's true or not true, I don't know, but for a man to be so humble and stuff like that, to say mm. something like that after I was jiving him, mm. that made me, that was a, that was a slammer, a, a hammer. Mm -hmm. That was, mm -hmm. that resonated with me all my, Thad took to me too. We used to hang out on the bus a lot. I learned a little bit about vodka and everything. I learned about, like, blah, blah, blah. We went to hear Bill Watchers once. Uh, he was playing with the Charles, uh, Charles uh, Colin Brass, uh, uh, Brass, Brass for scholarships. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And um, he and I sat till 2 o'clock in the morning because we were running real late, and he loved it. Bill came out with the Wildlife Revenge, mm. microphones all over the place, mm. which was not what Thad was, was doing right. necessarily. 
But uh, Thad loved it and respected it and loved it. And um, that's a that, cool, that was cool cross-section. A cool cross Yeah. So I, well, I started going on the road with Thad, and and it was it was an eye opener for me. It was the first time that I real. Oh, you talk about experimenting with time and things like that. We were playing. We were in Barcelona, playing "Willow Weep for Me." Willow Weep for Me. Yeah. And please uh, don't sing. I know. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So uh, Brookmeyer. Right? And it's in 4-4. And I couldn't find where the beats were. The band was so idiosyncratic that they were, and I remember running out in, in tears. And, mm. and, uh, uh, you know. and I used to criticize myself a lot. Thad said something to me, man, that also resonated all the time. He said, Duggar, it is not the artist's right, right, not the artist's right, to criticize himself directly after a performance. And if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, man, you sounded great, don't burst that guy's bubble. Sure. Tell him he don't know what he's talking you know, about. Great, great that, piece of advice. Yeah, it was Very a great good. piece of advice. Man. Gil, Gil kind of said something. We were, at, we were in Venice at Miles Evans, Gil's son's 21st birthday party. We were at a fancy uh, Italian restaurant, frescoes, and mm -hmm. nice. I didn't get along with the English manager, see. Hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and um, he accidentally knocked a glass of champagne over, right? <laughs> so I accidentally knocked a glass of champagne over on him. And then he knocked on me. I wound up, I took the water pitcher and just sprayed the guy. And the waiters got all upset because I think I might have sprayed water on the frescoes. So the fellows in the band felt that I should have Leave the restaurant post haste. Yeah. Right. Check this out. Gil says, hey, Tucker. They called me Tucker because on the Grammy Award record, they put me down as Dave Tucker. <laughs> right. So everybody started calling me Tucker. Okay. Tucker, wait for me. This is Gil Evans. Tucker, wait for me. And we were, we were walking around Venice together. He told me, this is Gil Evans talking to me, said, Duke Ellington told him that if you leave yourself open, you never know who will come along and pull your coat left. Hmm. That's what I teach my kids, too, hmm. the students. Hmm. If you leave yourself open, you never, it's only beautiful, man. Uh, you know, you never know. Uh, how did you get to that? Oh, that's, that's Thad Jones. But right? you know what? Gil was my next guy, and you just gave no, us a okay. great Gil story. That's, that, that's Gil great, Gil came too. to a recital. The very first recital I gave was the Carnegie Recital Hall when I was 40 years old. Mm. I played everything on that, and I was totally unprepared in the sense that um, everybody was there. The guy from the Met, the guy from the Pack. The place was packed. Any of those waiters from the Venice thing uh, come over for that? Or no? <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this was before the waiters thing. So uh, this was 84. The waiters thing must have been 86, 87. So, so I'm up there playing all of this stuff, these transcriptions. Yeah, I had no recital experience. There's Carnegie Recital Hall. I had a string quartet. I had a piano. And um, I was running off the stage for water, and I was running back and forth. My kids were aghast in the audience. I, 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 if I didn't remember they were there, I might have stayed off. You know what I mean? But I didn't want to do that in front of my kids. My, my father and mother told me that my daughter was, <gasps> what, you know, that kind of thing. I got through the, I got through the show. Mm. The audience went whoosh in standing ovation. It wasn't like 
I never believed that. But lately, I'm beginning to believe it because what they saw was a guy trying to do the thing, trying to yeah. play the music. Not, not this academic perfection, trying to be an artist. I, I don't know what, try, trying, to, trying to make the music. And um, Gil happened to be there. Mm, and he hired nice. me for the orchestra. Wow, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, and um, so that was a wonderful, that was a wonderful learning experience, man. And everything Gil, Gil just walked in and everybody was like, All right. he didn't like, have to say two words. Like I said, he said to me about the Tucker, just give him a signpost. Uh, he loved whatever I was doing. Yeah, I mean, I remember the Gil Evans band, you know, and... Um, that's great. Let's it, let's. I just want to yeah. get a couple more names. Yeah, 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 right. Let's let's go over to some New York famous New York brass players. Okay. Uh, real quick thoughts. Uh, let's focus on three of the all-time great trombone players uh, in New York here. Tenor trombone players, uh, gentlemen that you've now recorded uh, many many things with, but two solo records, and you're right. in the Pew Taylor Projects. Just the second just one is just coming review. out. Yeah, got a good review. Congratulations the, the on that. Journey. Great. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, uh, Jim Pugh. Yeah, Jim and I met I think on Jocko's band. Mm. I didn't know Jim. He, he was on the road with Woody Herman or something. Mm -hmm. He came in, and um, he reminds me of the story. The first time we, we really started becoming close, um, one of the fellas didn't want to give him solo space. And I just said, let the kid play. <laughs> and that's when, he, that's when he and I became friends. And um, I did that with Larry Farrell, too. You know, mm. Larry Farrell. I, we were on a jingle together. He was subbing, and then the guy who he was subbing for come in, he said, what do I do? I said, you fill out the form. <laughs> I, said, I met you suddenly for Jim Pugh on a gig, on a, on a, I don't know if you remember that. I right? do remember yeah. that, yeah. I, I, I couldn't make it. I had to be in Washington or something like that, but I showed up and, yeah, and what was the question? Oh, yeah, so, Jim. Quick right. thought on Jim. Right. You've, you've recorded love so many his, great things with him. Love his work. Always gave me so much room. He's phenomenal tenor trombone player, and to me was a phenomenal uh, human being. And um, we still have a pretty good relationship. I love everything about his work, everything, everything about him. And we got together on uh, the first project, the Pew Taylor Project, uh, with Tom Jung and Digital Music Product, uh, Digital Music, mm -hmm. something or other, DMP. And um, I remember, I really, uh, I want, uh, you know how I am pushing my career, and so, Tom Jung broke his leg or broke his arm or something, and he couldn't come to New York. So I flew to Minneapolis to his hotel room, to a hospital room, to um, push my stuff, you know? And then he finally said, all right, you and Jim, maybe, because Jim obviously was pushing stuff too. Right. And we did this project together, and it was terrific. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's terrific, but you it's know. It's a great, I have yeah. a copy myself. Yeah, it's terrific. Excellent. Everybody comes up telling me about it. It was one of the first CDs ever, mm -hmm. ever released, you mm -hmm. know, that kind of thing. Then we started the next project five or 10 years later, and we just got it out now. We have half of a project already done, I guess, Putella Pew Three, which will be a year or two. I got, yeah. I got so much stuff working, I don't quick, know. I, yeah. Quick thought, uh, Wayne Andre. Wayne Andre was a gentleman uh, to me, wonderful player. Again, he was one of those lead players who wasn't into. He and Irby were very different. Irby Green's another guy. You, you could probably get next a guy. Absolutely, right. of course. All right. So I met Irby early on, and Irby liked my work, and he even asked me to do a duo with him on a Creed Taylor project. Uh, Creed Taylor, CTI. Creed Taylor, right? Yeah. And I did. And he really took to me, and. Um, he helped me, he knew I played a LeBlanc, a Houghton at that time, so he helped me uh, become a LeBlanc artist. He really believed in me. Uh, 
He even wanted me to buy the barn on his uh, mm. farm. And, uh, yeah. In Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, in Pennsylvania. But terrific. Wayne was a very different kind of player. Wayne was a more open, more Duke Ellington-y. Mm. I mentioned Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. what, you know what I love about Duke Ellington? It's like, to me, it's more like classical chamber music. And let's say the bassy thing. I mean, the band swings and blah, blah, blah. But, but, but the, there's such an ambiguity in the time at the same time. Uh, that it's almost uh, classical in its in its approach, you know. Wayne had that, hmm. and um, the very first real deal band I played in was Chuck Israel's band with Bill Watrous, Wayne Andre, and Garnett Brown. And um, I threw myself on the mercy of the court. I was still a Juilliard student at the time. I was really a classical musician. Um, I I didn't know anything. I just owned up. I said cats. I didn't say cats. I was too. Uh, I said God, help me out, and, and they did. You know, mm. and then I played the Copacabana with Wayne and Garnett Brown for about a year. Where two Copacabana was a great club in New York. You know, sure, they played all these, all these acts: Billy Eckstein and Sarah Vaughan. And uh, oh, man, it was great. Um, and he, he, Wayne was a help to all the young cats that came through town. Yeah, I always found Wayne right. to be very, uh, oh, very, very helpful. helpful. And, very and he was also in his own way smart. You know, Irby did all the recordings, but Wayne did all the jingles. <laughs> you know what right. that means? Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. Of so, I mean, so he was. Uh, he was terrific. Real quick, last one of the names, um, and I know a great friend of yours, one of the all-time New York characters to my mind, and, and I mean that in a very positive way, Lou Soloff. Lou Soloff. Uh, Lou Soloff is my bud, and uh, we've been great friends since the late 60s. We were introduced by Mr. Fabulous, Alan Rubin, <laughs> and he always wanted us to be brothers. God rest his soul, he passed away. I'm going to tell you how he died, too. Alan, Alan yeah. Rubin. Alan Rubin was the guy who gave us all advice. When Randy wanted to know something, he went to Alan. When I wanted to know something, when Lou wanted to know something, everybody went to Alan because Alan had this great mind. Fattis wanted to know something. Um, and I knew Fat Fattis was my roommate in, in Thad Jones's band, so, and he was like 18, 19 at the time. Rubin was, was, was spectacular, with a great sense of humor, you know. Oh, the best. Legendary, right. And um, Lou and I became good friends. Uh, Lou was always the one who said, keep your head in the music. Just, just practice and play and practice, and he insisted on it. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't, we're elitists in a certain way. He, Louis wouldn't be, um, he wouldn't want me not, he wouldn't want to be on the gig with me if I wasn't practicing. That's the kind of guy. It was like Gil. Gil loved him. Oh, Gil loved him. And, and he was playing the Gil's band for 15, 20 years. Um, Lou likes playing with me. Because Lou knows that I think he's the best lead player in the world. Forgive me for that, but that you know, um, he dances. His idol is Snooky Young. Snooky Young, man, the way Snooky Young would dance over a, over a band. And Lou, that that's what he does, which lines up with the way I play, kind mm -hmm. of. You mm -hmm. know, you know what I'm saying? That's another thing with Schneider. There's a reason Schneider loves to play duo with me because we treat rhythm as if it's a child's playground. Now here again, that's a classical declamatory style, so maybe it's a little more lenient than going over a rhythm section. I don't know. I played in enough bands that I didn't get fired. So mm -hmm. yeah. that, that must have had a relevance, you know? Uh, and if a leader wants to tell you, hey, hey, he'll tell you that, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I would say stretch it as much as you can. That's my philosophy, man. Yeah, of yeah. course. Well, that's I, I, you and Lou, you know, have yeah, share that we have kind that, of. Uh, and, and we laugh all thing. the time together. Like um, 
We went to see Day of the Dolphin wearing dolphins masks. Uh, Vince, we went to the unknown comedian wearing bags over our heads. Uh, we went to see Tower Inf Inferno, where my daughter at that time was three or four months old, and, and I got a phone call. We had to rush out to, 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 to help her with a cold, so we didn't see how the movie ends. Anyway, it, it's that we were, well, we pal around, and John Faddis and Lou and I were really tight on the road. Um, marvelous artist, always keeps you play, brother, play, practice. We're on the phone every day, no matter where we are in the world. We practice. We played in the brass quintet together. Now. Mm -hmm. We played in Thad's band together. He was very instrumental. Louis was very instrumental in my career, in, That's in awesome. helping me and teaching me. Great teacher. As we uh, as we close out, I want to make sure to mention your your. Great bass trombone, the Dave Taylor model uh, by Edwards. Tell us in uh, 30 seconds or less. I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. Take as much time as you want. But, but uh, right. tell us a little bit about, right. the, about the horn. Steve Shires started a company called Osmond Brass. Mm -hmm. This back in the day, before mm -hmm. he was Steve Shires. Mm -hmm. he, he worked for Osmond Brass. I was looking to make a horn change. Okay. So I called up Steve Shires because I heard he was the bell guy. And he sent me down a bunch of bells. And I called him up. He, he called me up or something to find out what you think. I said, Steve, I, I don't know what everybody's telling you about these bells, but they're dead. Mm. They're just dead. So uh, when, he brought, when he went out to Edwards, um, he and Gary Greenhold actually went out there together because I was telling him my subjective truth, mm -hmm. whether he took it to heart or not. You need people around you who are going to be telling you their subjective truths. Um, he brought me out to the company. You met me right around there because I was going nuts with horns. Mm -hmm, and, uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they gave me an inline setup. I didn't care for that. They said, don't worry about it. We'll make it whatever you want. I said, I want a dependent setup. You know, should I tell what that is? I think, they, I think most Everybody of our viewers know, know, yeah, right. know what that is. And um, then I had straight slides with the dependent setup. I played light bells. I know a lot of guys like playing heavy bells. I like playing light bells. Uh, maybe that's another reason I'm still playing the trombone. <laughs> you know? Now, these guys are playing these horns. That even the young ones, they can't hold the horns up, man. Um, I play um, dual bore slides. Okay. And, uh, that, and um, mouthpieces are moderate in size. They're, I play a lot of different mouthpieces. Um, I would say they're around a Bach one and a quarter. I'm experimenting, so I might go more. Bach one and a quarter or... A, or a Griego, or I don't know what the numbers are. He doesn't tell me because he's making me a mouthpiece and we're experimenting <laughs> so much. But they're middle size. They must be somewhere around Shilky 58, 59, 59, not, not humongous, you know. On one of my setups, um, I have two different horns. I have sterling silver, not so nickel silver slides with a little lighter bell than that, so I do use a big mouth. You know, it's all about balance, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have a heavy bell, so you have a light slide, you have a heavy slide, you have a light, you know, yeah, balance. Sure. And yeah. Good, good stuff. Yeah. Um, Dave, as we close out with one last question, um, you have been extraordinarily influential in the brass world, Thank certainly you. as a bass trombone player, without question. Thank in you. the brass world in general, uh, the longevity of your career is is. I'm booking into 2015. Right? Wow. Unfortunately, financially, I'm not in a position to hire you, but uh, if, 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 things, if things change, I have your number. Um, <laughs> I, I hope I'm available. I, yeah, but it, all kidding aside, um, you've and you've and you your your career has shaped as the times have changed, and you've built this solo career, which I find uh, very extraordinary and impressive. One piece of advice, and you've given young people a lot of advice in this interview, and it's been great to talk with you, and you've been energetic and, and entertaining, as I knew you would be. 
Um, that doesn't if, mean silly, right? No, no. not at all. all right. no, no silliness at all. <laughs> right. okay, if, if you were to sum up, sum up one piece of advice you would give young people coming into music now, um, if you could capsulize it down to that, what would, what would be your one piece I of advice? I wrote two articles for the ITA Journal. One was called Risk, and one was called Be There. Risk meaning um, gamble, mm -hmm. whether it's educated gambles or not. Don't protect your flanks so much. Keep moving forward. Think about your flanks, but keep going forward. And B there is get on the gig. Mm -hmm. Be at the gig. Take any, I, I, my philosophy is I took every gig, every gig, and learned something from every gig. And um, that, that, that would be the best, best advice, be mm -hmm. there. I, just to give you an example, everybody said, when I was going to Juilliard, you can't play in big bands. That was really a thing. They didn't even have any records at Juilliard. Mm -hmm. No jazz records at Juilliard. Um, but I went my way. I, I did what I had to do. I kept my grounding. Um, so I, I, everybody said, don't do a Broadway show. I did a Broadway show. I had to sit next to Julian Priester, who recommended me to Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you know what's yeah. going to happen, man? I mean, um, and... Uh, and the, the risk thing, like Alessi says to me, uh, you took a lot of risks. You, uh, you, yeah, it paid off. Mm -hmm. You took a lot of risks. So, yeah. so that, that would be it. Uh, an interesting thing, a very well-known employer, uh, Emil Charlap. When I was young, I was do all these gigs and bye-bye. He would say to me, turn me down every now and then. <laughs> you, you know what he meant by that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, be independent. Yeah. So I, I hung around guys, my, my clique of guys, uh, Mr. Fabulous, Alan Rubin, and, and all the guys fostered independent thought mm -hmm. and uh, wanted you to go do your thing. They didn't necessarily always believe in each other's things per se, but as long as you were serious about doing it, they support, surround yourselves with positive people and um, support them too. That's great advice, Dave. Dave, it's been great My spending pleasure. the evening with you. Thanks for taking time out. Continued success with your myriad of projects, uh, recording, teaching, uh, books, everything you're, you're doing at all. Um, great to see you. Thanks for spending the time. And uh, um, I know our viewers are going to get a lot out of this. So thank, thank you, Dave. Really I'm appreciate honored it. to be here. Thank you. And we will, uh, we will catch all of you next time on Bone to Pick.